no, good neck is Tetzave. Ba'ato Tetzave. Let me tell you something about this week's portion. Ba'ato Tetzave. Let me tell you which page it is. You shall find the page over there. Um, Esther. The, um, the, um, ah, found it. <laughs> is that three. book on the bottom the same as this one? No, it's not. This, this is the only one. So, why don't you put the page to the to the beginning? That's just an introduction over there. Okay. Vato Tetzaba. So basically, um, the verses are going in in order over here, of the way the um, tabernacle was constructed while the Jewish people were in the desert. Um, in a way, it seems a little bit uh, confining God to a structure. Um, God says in the portion of Teruma, it says, "Va'asuli migdash v'shachanti b'socham." They shall build for me a sanctuary, uh, a place where I can dwell. And God dwells in the Mishkan. That's the sanctuary in the desert. The Jewish people built for God a uh, sanctuary in which they were commanded to bring, uh, put in, construct certain vessels, a certain structure, and all the details of that uh, uh, structure and what, how it was made, uh, a lot of it was discussed in the previous portion, in the portion of Truma. I'm going to speak in a little bit softly today because my, my voice is not there. So, uh, the, um, so the details of that particular structure and the vessels and the different things that took that were inside the Mishkan are described in the last week's portion in the portion of Truma. This Mishkan was the forerunner before the Beit HaMikdash, before the uh, eternal and the uh, place that God chose for His house. That's called the Beit HaMikdash. Of course, nowadays, we don't have a temple. Nowadays, we have what we call a miniature temple, a Mikdash Ma'at, which is a shul, a synagogue, serves as a miniature temple, a Mikdash Ma'at, a shul, a study hall, the place where you uh, do Torah and tefillah, you study and you pray. That is sort of taken the place in a miniature way to substitute for the Beit HaMikdash. Once God chose Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and once God chose the Mount Moriah, that's the Temple Mount, to be the place on which the Beit HaMikdash, <coughs> the sanctuary, the Temple should be built, all other places have become places that are prohibited to 
be the place of the Beit HaMikdash. You cannot make a Beit HaMikdash, you cannot make a sanctuary, you cannot make an altar, you cannot bring sacrifices anywhere else. The only place that one is permitted to uh, do and to perform all the services that are related to the sanctuary, to the temple, is only on the Temple Mount and only in the Beit HaMikdash. But before the Beit HaMikdash was built, while the Jews were still in the uh, desert, and then later on, until they came finally to their uh, destiny and they captured and they distributed the land of Israel and Jerusalem was made available to them, they did have did have temporary structures that were used and served as the temple for the time being, for the time that they were traveling. The uh, Mishkan that we are studying, the sanctuary or the tabernacle that we are studying in these verses of these weeks, of last week and these weeks, those are. this is the temporary structure that went along with them in their journeys. It was made so that it could be dismantled, folded up, or put away. It had wagons that it was stored on, and it journeyed with them. When they would camp, when they would stop, it was unloaded, it was put put up, the structure was, the puzzles, all the pieces were put together, and there is very detailed instructions how all of this took place. In the last week's portion, we talked mainly about the different vessels and the structure of the temple. I want to just run by very quickly, just so you are familiar, what were the main utensils that to, that were in the temple. The verse began last week with telling the people, that God telling to Moses to relate to the people, that everybody should contribute, or whoever wishes to contribute, should contribute for the structure of the Mishkan. He laid out for them 13 or 15 items that were mostly important and needed for the temple, for the sanctuary, what they should do. So he laid it out before them, different kinds of wool threads, and uh, blue, and purple, and, and red, and then they would have uh, goats here and they spun it together then they had acacia wood and you know so how to get in the desert acacia wood that's another issue that is dealt with but so on and so forth to construct and certainly there was gold there was copper there was silver a lot of the uh, precious uh, metals that were there and the people were asked to contribute to the construction of the temple one of the most important uh, vessel that was in the temple is the Aron. Aron means a box. Today they call a a dresser is called an Aron, uh, but a box is an Aron, an ark, or it's called that's an ark. That's the lost ark. What? That's, that's, that's the one that's lost. It's like they don't. Yeah, it's it's hidden. Room. Yeah, it's hidden. The ark was. The ark was a box, which the Torah describes as two and a half cubits by one and a half cubits. An amma is the measure, it's uh, 
it's a six tefachim. It's about a foot or so. Uh, so it's two and a half by one and a half. It was a box, and in the box, God says that later on, eventually, this is God telling Moses on the mountain what he's going to. He's giving him the um, the blueprints, the architectural, the layouts, the designs of what he needs to make. He tells them that they shall make the box, and inside of that box, they will put the luchot, the tablets, the tablets of the testimony that God is going to give to the Jewish people. So there was a box. Inside the box, they placed the tablets, those uh, engraved with the Ten Commandments that God has given to Moses. They put that into the box. That's called the Aron. Is that both sets of the ones that were shattered? The shattered and the the other ones. Then, inside of the box, the box had a cover. The cover is called the kaporis. That's a lid that fit on top of the box. The box itself was constructed out of acacia wood. But it had an outer and an inner box sort of to surround the acacia wood with gold. The outer and the inner boxes were made out of pure gold. And then the the uh, the lid was made out of pure gold too. But the lid had hammered out from its sides. When we say hammered out, it means it was first a chunk of gold as opposed to sometimes when you create designs, you put pieces together and you weld them together, you melt them down but in this case God's instruction was that it should be made hammered out meaning of the same piece and then they just banged in the middle and get the sides to uh, to be raised and then they would uh, shape them and out of the shape of the two sides of the lid of the kaporis, it's called the lid of the ark they shaped two kruvim, two cherubs. Those were, they had the face, uh, children's faces, and they had wings. This was cherubs, they had wings. And their wings were by their heads, and they were facing each other. These cherubs were facing each other, and their wings was beyond, over their heads, so they provided sort of a cover for the ark. God says to Moses, that I will meet you from the, on top of the cherubs, and when I speak to you, God's voice that came down, that Moses here hears, came from in between the two cherubs on there. That's where, over the lid, that is where God's words come. Now, we are not permitted, you know, even beforehand, we read, to make anything like that. And this was only specifically meant for the Holy Temple, and that, you know, physical manifestation of God's word coming through there. That box was placed within the general structure that they built in a section by itself. The entire Mishkan was, the length of it was 30, it was 30 long, and, um, 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 By ten wide, 
it was, it was 30, 30 by 10. It was 30 long by 10 wide. Uh, it had 20 beams, 20 planks going along the side, which one was one and a half, okay? Which made it uh, 30, okay? And then it had, um, on the on the long side, it had eight plus uh, the two sides. So it was, it was, um, just double check the day. It was 10, like I said. No, it's not, okay, it's 10. Okay, it's 10, it's 10 by, 10 by 30. But what I was going to tell you is that at the, uh, the ark that we built was placed within that structure, uh, there was a curtain. The length of the tabernacle was 30. But at, after 20 uh, cubits from the entrance, there was a curtain. Then there was a space of 10 by 10 inside that curtain in which they placed the um, in which they placed the Aron, in which they placed the Ark. In 201 there's like a picture. So. What is it? There's a full picture. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So that's 20. That's 10. Just say, this is 10, this is 30, and this is 10. That's 10 Amas, 10 cubits. That's the width. Okay, so the bottom line is like this. Inside of the structure of the temple, there were two spaces. There was one space which was called the holy space, was called the Kodesh, and yet there was another space which was called the Kodesh HaKadashim, the holiest of the holiest. Which means there was a curtain that was put up within that structure itself, and that curtain separated between the holy of holiest and the holy. That curtain was placed one-third away from the back wall to make that the inner part for the Holy of Holiest. The only thing that was in that place was the Ark. The Ark with the lid and the cherubs. That was in that Holy of Holiest. That's inside there. That's inside there. You're looking at the courtyard. You're not looking. No, like inside here. Yes, that's right. You're looking at the courtyard over there. You're not looking at the and the Mishkan over there. Oh, yeah. Okay? I, I, I will show you the pictures later, but I, oh, okay. I think, but listen, but the, I'm just giving you the general outline so that you um, have a general idea what it looked like and what was in there, what the different uh, uh, vessels that were in the, in the temple. So we had in the Holy of Holiest, we had the Ark with the lid, with the cherubs, with the Luchot that was in there. Now, that place was sealed off to everybody. Even the Kohanim, even the priests, weren't permitted to go in there. Even the high priest wasn't allowed in there. The high priest would enter into the Holy of Holiest just one time in the year, and that would be on Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, he would enter into the Holy of Holiest, he'd do his service inside, and then he would leave. But all year round, people were not permitted. That was considered the holiest place in which the divine presence uh, rested and nobody was allowed in there. In the rest of the 
uh, structure, there were three basic vessels that were there. Okay, one of them was the menorah. One of them was the candelabra. They would light the menorah every evening, and the flame would burn from the nighttime till the next day. Then they had a table, a table that was set in there, and on top of the table, every Shabbat, they would bring breads that they would line up over there, and that was placed over there for the duration of the Shabbat. After the Shabbat, you know, they would uh, later on take it away. They would have a, it set uh, set up over there till it rotated. The next Shabbat, they brought in the other, uh, the next, uh, the next loaves of bread. It goes into all the details over there. So that was the table. So we have the candelabra with the table. There was actually a third vessel, which only is in our parsha, the end of our section. It doesn't speak about it over there, but it's it's in our parsha later on. There was a golden altar, an altar made out of gold, and that was used to have the incense burned. They burnt incense on top of the of that of that altar. That was inside. So there were basically three vessels that were in the uh, structure of the uh, of the of the Mishkan in the sanctuary in that place the Aaron was behind the curtain and the three the candelabra and the table and the golden altar they were outside of the curtain in the front part the door was set up that it was on the east side you went in through the east the back side was the west side was closed and the two sides were the north and the south were the two sides the entrance to the Mishkan was from the front the Torah also talks about the um, um, the structure of the different how the uh, planks were made and what gave us this area goes through all the details talks about the sockets it talks about how they were the uh, bars that kept the Mishkan together. It goes through the entire structure, how everything worked out in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Mishkan. Then the Torah tells you about the court, that's what you were showing me at the end over there, the Parsha, talks about the general construct, because outside of the Mishkan, there was the main Mizbeach, that was the altar, in which all the sacrifices were brought. That was on the outside. So you have... Two altars? There were two altars. There was a small altar that was inside. That was Mizbah HaZohov. That was the golden altar. Then you had the Mizbah HaChitzayn. It's also known as the copper Mizbah. Or also known as the Mizbah made out of earth. Because it was a hollow. It wasn't... It was a, that was a big... There's actually two opinions, you know, how high it actually and how big it actually was according to some it was very huge and some not so huge but still it was a big massive uh, structure but what they would do is they would fill it up with sand with dirt with earth when they came to the place because it was hollow and what it stabilized it was the earth that would fill it in it's also it's called a Mizbeach in the outer Mizbeach it's called the copper Mizbeach in the Choshes because it's made out of copper and it's also called uh, 
the Mizbech uh, Adama, the Mizbech of Earth, which they filled up uh, with the Earth to um, and they place it. That was outside of the Mishkan. These were the main, and then you had the courtyard, which was surrounded by curtains, by hangings that separated it, and that was that area was the place, the courtyard, the Mishkan, and the Kodesh Hakadoshim, Holy of Holies. That was the structure. That was last week. This week, when we're starting to study, we're starting to study about the second part about the special garments that the um, the priests had to wear and the procedure how they built and made those garments exactly those were beautiful ornaments beautiful and very specific and very detailed uh, ways the garments that they had to be constructed and the way they were made and the uh, verse goes into minute details of telling us exactly how and how they were constructed. Can I ask a question? How come they don't dress like that anymore? First of all, some people do dress like that. But second of all, most important is, when I say we had, for example, we had a bar mitzvah this uh, Sunday, a Monday actually, over here from a Bukhari family. And they're from uh, the Muslim country from Uzbekistan. And it was amazing when you saw some of their garb and the robes, and the, it reminded you a lot about the, the garments of the Kohanim because it was made with purple wool, with threads, and with gold linen, you know, very much like that. But the physical temple is no longer here, so we don't have, we don't have the priests, and we don't have the uh, need for these particular garments. But certainly we should study this and the Torah gives us all these dimensions not for something that took place a long time ago if it has really no application and it has no meaning to us that you know okay so what happened happened now, like who really at the end of the day uh, cares or what difference does it make to us if it happened in this way or that way or what it was constructed as if it, does, it doesn't mean anything to us so we certainly when we study these details, it's not just for an exercise to find out what they did and how they made it over there. We're studying it because somehow to find a meaning in this. And for example, something very, very strange, what I just brought up, that when somebody studies these portions, would ask you and they would say, we don't understand, why is it that the uh, golden uh, altar, which was part, I explained to you basically how many vessels did we talk about. We talked about the ark with its lid. We talked about the candelabra. We talked about the table. We talked about the golden altar. And we talked about the outside altar. We talked about five different. Okay, there were some utensils that went along, you know, with the menorah had, you know, the pick, the this, the that, you know, it had a few things. The table had other things that went along, you know, to shape the bread, to take it out, to move it, you know, they had different things. And, you know, of course, the Mizbeach, you know, and uh, had its, its things. So everything had, the altar, they had this, the, the, but basically there were five vessels in the temple over here, right? So it's amazing that the Torah talks about three of the vessels, right? About four of the vessels in the portion of Truma last week 
and it leaves the fifth vessel, it leaves it for here. Maybe I'm just going to go for exile into um, to Persia. You know, the, the king in the Bukhanetzar, you know, uh, uh, exiled the Jewish people from um, from Israel into Babylonia. And then uh, it was Kurdish, Cyrus, he was the... Uh, he was the king that followed that the Jews were under, and he was actually, uh, you know, half reasonable. I say half, one half, yes or not, and they and they allowed for uh, for the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. But in the beginning, when the when he um, when he exiled the Jewish people from from Israel, they took along. They uh, robbed the temple with all of its vessels and all the stuff, and they and they um, they actually put them on display, and that was a way of showing uh, their um, um, their superiority or their control over the Jewish people, because the the Jewish people were actually promised uh, redemption after seventy years going into exile, and. The exile took place in two in two sections. First, because the Jewish people were divided into two kingdoms. There was the king of Judah, Yehuda, the Malchus of Yehuda. Mm-hmm. Then there was the other twelve tribes, and they were two. Judah was centered around Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, where the north and the other areas were mainly uh, controlled by the king, the Malchus the kings of of Israel, and there were battles over there and fights, but the Judean exile preceded the other exile by 11 years, and uh, the Jews had the promise that they were going to be freed from exile after 70 years. Now what happened was that the, um, the calculation was not from the time that the Judean exile began, but it actually uh, was supposed to be counted 11 years later after the rest of the Jewish people went into exile. That's when the 70 years started. And and what happened was that when, uh, when King Ahasuerus, who replaced King Koresh, King Sarius, when he took over him, and the story of the Megillah takes place, that's when the, the story of the Megillah takes place, the Purim, the story of Purim, takes place in between the first and the second temple. The Jews were exiled, and then and eventually they were allowed back to Jerusalem, and they rebuilt, and they built the second temple. That's what happened later on. Um, but at this point, it is said that one of the things that King Ahasuerus, when he made this big party over there, he used and he brought out the vessels of the Holy Temple, and he put them out on display. And that was supposed to be sort of a uh, show that the 70 years are up and the Jews have not been uh, brought back, taken out of exile and that that's uh, the way it's going to be so part of it, the vessels that he showed off were actually the vessels of the temple of the holy temple that were there so they did, like you said, they did, did rob and they did take and they did have some of the um, um, the utensils of the Mishkan, of the of the Beis HaMikdosh. But yet, a lot of the things that they have was, is actually wrong. 
for example, they have a picture of the menorah on the big wall over there. Supposed in, in Rome? To, in Rome. It's supposed yeah. to be, and they have the, uh, like the shape of the menorah. Uh, they have it different than what well, we have it by tradition oh. that the menorah was. Um, you know, we, we, we know, and, you know, it was a big thing by the Rebbe to, uh, he brought it out. Uh, I mean, it wasn't the Rebbe's, uh, the Rebbe didn't come up with it. It was from the Maimonides and before that they knew about it, but nobody really made such a big to-do as the Rebbe did about this. He says, like, the menorah's branches were not, like, circular, but the menorah's branches were just, you know, they went out on a slant, you know, they just went out, they were just at an angle, going out from the branch, not, but the, the picture that they have there of the menorah of the temple is different, it's round, but that's wrong, and so on and so forth, oh. other things, and things got mixed up over there. So they, they may, they probably don't have it? Maybe. Um, see, they, some, I don't know exactly what they have, I'm not really, and I haven't read right now, really I'm know. telling you things just from memory, I didn't read recently, so I have oh. to go ahead and refresh my memory exactly, but this is what I'm saying to you, is that the, um, this is the story of the Megillah, that uh, the story of Purim, is taking place seventy years, and that's within, uh, within the um, you know earshot, you know of the uh, of the redemption, because uh, eventually, they say that they did allow for the Jews to go back and build the second temple. That's what uh, that what took place after, and it has to do also with the um, with Esther's son. They say you know Esther's son from. Uh, from King Ahasuerus, who later on okay, uh, took over, who took, took over, over took over his father. He took over. Yeah. Okay, but that's the other story, and uh, which also is, is interesting that when uh, uh, Esther was uh, coming to King Ahasuerus and she was uh, asking him to uh, uh, petitioning him, he always asked her, "What is it that you want?" But he always added a stipulation. He said, only up to half of the kingdom I will give you. In other words, when she came to ask, he always says, up to half it will be done. It didn't. What did it mean when he says up to half? Why would he always emphasize he'll only do half? So uh, Talmud explains that it refers to the temple, that he told her, the half, because the temple was half built. They start, they allowed them, and then they stopped it. He says, that half, that I'm not going to give you. In other words, don't ask to go ahead and build the temple, because that's, that's going to be a no-no. So he says, I'll do everything for you, basically, up to the half. half. He, didn't, he wasn't going to let her uh, to bring back to build, the, um, to build the temple. What I thought was unusual was her boys, I think she had three sons or something, then none of them ended up Jewish. Uh, they they were probably part of the kingdom. Easter, uh, uh, Easter, that's, that's a whole nother. You know, I don't. You know, I don't. I can't answer that. I mean, there's a whole lot of uh, different midrashim and interpretation. Because Jesse and Howie had a big discussion on that. Because um, Howie was asking about Purim. Yeah, no, but um, but. Uh, Why they were not Jewish? Is they was Jewish? But they, they Jewish? didn't continue. They became part of the country there. They did they not were, lead their one lives. One became a king. Oh, I can't think of his name. How he knows his name. There's a movie that... There was Daryavish. Daryavish, then there was her... Um, who later on, eventually, they gave permission to build the... Uh, the Beis Amigdash. The Beis Amigdash was built later on through through them. Um, 
the whole um I mean the whole episode, you know, you're saying being Jewish and uh um it was uh, like uh, destined from from the heavens for for this to take place in such a way. I mean, even if you read just in the literal way, you know, you learn to read the story. I mean, it was God's plan, you know, to provide this savior for the Jewish people. But some say that one of the, you know, in the Talmud, that one of the reasons that the Jewish people were doomed for initially, it says that um, Mordechai was worried because he, he realized that uh, uh, that the decree to annihilate the Jews were because the Jews were guilty of something. So he was very, very, very worried about it. They thought that they were one of the things that they were guilty of. So it says that you know that they enjoyed the feast. You know, so that would mean that you know enjoying the feast of Achashverosh in which. He presented all the vessels of the temple. It was like uh, uh, insulting. It was very insulting and it was very degrading to the Jewish people and to God what he tried to do. It wasn't just that he made a party and was having a good time, but he sort of was mocking and he was sort of uh, trying to make a point that, you know, the Jewish people are never going to get out of exile, and that's it. You know. But why did he marry a Jewish girl? I just never understood that. I mean, well, he didn't. First of all, he hadn't. One of the big things of the Megillah is she never told him that she was Jewish. Oh, I know. That. She, she actually that was one of the big things she never told him, and this was one of the things that he wanted to know when she was, when she, when he was telling her, when she finally told him, "I will tell you at the party who I am." It's only after Haman was. Um, uh, you know, she had to save the Jewish people, and Haman went against the entire Jewish people. That she revealed to the king that she was really a Jewess, you know, and that, that her uh, her lineage. She actually came from the king Shaul. From she came from royal family. She was royal blood. She was had a very special uh, connection to, uh, to to the kingdom. So she was uh, she ended up as a queen, but she actually comes from a royal family, from a Jewish royal family. But Achashverosh didn't know. He didn't know. He had no clue that she was Jewish. Um, and um, uh, one of the reasons she didn't want to tell him is because she didn't want him to marry her. So she she she, she thought that if he'd think that she's a nobody of the street, she's not worthy for being uh, a queen, and maybe he's gonna just reject her. She didn't want to go, but you know. But it's been destined by, by God to happen that way. So a lot of the things that took place, uh, you know, we have to say they were took place because that's the way God manipulated that things should take place so that the salvation should come. It was sort of a wake-up call for the Jewish people to turn to God, you know, so that they can, you know, God made a decree, a wake-up call for them, they turned to God, and then God sort of provided for them the miracle and the salvation. She took the chance, though. Mordechai was arguing to her in the literal sense. Mordechai was telling her logically, basically, that it's worth the chance because, number one, Haman made a decree that all the Jewish people should be killed in one day. On the 13th day of Adar, he basically prepared, he allowed for almost a year from the time that he gave out the decree, he allowed for one year, almost a little less than a year, 
for everybody to get together. You know, the king, Achashverosh, was a mighty king. He ruled over 127 provinces, and that was basically the entire world he was in control. And Haman, uh, uh, who got permission from the king, he was able to decree that they're going to kill the entire Jewish people in all of these 127 provinces. That basically means to annihilate and to massacre all the Jewish people. Uh, that was the uh, decree of Haman. Um, when um, um, uh, when uh, they um, when later on when uh, Mordechai was telling when Esther was uh, Mordechai saying to Esther, you should go and intervene to the king on behalf of your people. Uh, Esther first says to him, but you know that uh, the rule is that you cannot just come to the king without being called. She says, I haven't been called to the king for the past 30 days. So if I just come to the king, and if he doesn't give you his scepter, he doesn't let you touch, then he kills you. So Mordechai answered her, but Mordechai was arguing to her logically. Mordechai says that, you know, look, you never know. You're a Jew still also. Who says that this time next year you'll still have favor in this king's eyes, you know, he may decide to dump you. And the fact that you're Jewish, he says, don't think while everybody else is in the street over there is going to be killed and going to be massacred, and you're going to find yourself protection in the house of the king. That's not going to happen, because you never know. So he says, he basically was saying to her, it's worth the chance to go, even though you weren't called to the king, and to... Uh, try to intercede for uh, for the rest of the Jewish people because you're not even sure. He's basically telling her you're not sure about yourself. No. Esther, in return, says that they should go ahead and fast and turn to God for three days, uh, day and night, and then she says she will come to the um, to the king, even though it's not by the uh, by the right. It's not according to the law. But still, she says, I'm ready to go. He says, if I'm going to be lost, and, you know, in other words, I'm lost, I'm lost. You know, she says, if I'm lost, I'm lost. So she was ready. Of course, she was ready to self-sacrifice, you know. And But that, that made her Queen Esther. And that's why she asked later on to be written in the Megillah, and they should write it down. And they actually added it to the books of the writings, to the Holy scriptures, you know, they have the 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 Nevi'im, they have the prophets, and then they have the Ketuvim, the writings, and this was added to the writings. That's where we have the Megillat Esther that we that, that, that we read. Because she was willing to sacrifice herself? That's why she because she was special, and yeah, yeah, that she gave up her life, and she saved, well, at the end of the day, she saved the entire Jewish people in that time. And it's amazing to see generally how easy it was to uh, convince Achashverosh, you know, to go ahead and go along with it, you know. It says, right in the first words in the Megillah, it says, Hu Achashverosh, that's the Achashverosh, he was evil from the beginning to the end. It didn't take much convincing to the evil Achashverosh to go ahead and allow for Haman's plot. Because what really happened over here, if you think about it, you know, Haman was given uh, a promotion. 
So Naaman's promotion was the king promoted him, and the king said that people should bow and they should prostrate prostrate themselves for him. That was basically a sign of his uh, promotion of being elevated and being great. It wasn't really uh, um, that he became a, a a deity or that he was a god, but Haman it went to his head right away. As soon as he saw that everybody is bowing and prostrating themselves to him, he came and he said, "Oh, I'm a god." But as soon as he said that he's a god, then the Jew Mordechai he could no longer bow or prostrate himself for an idol for a for a deity. He couldn't do it anymore. So while all the people of the of the court were all bowing and prostrating to Haman, Mordechai didn't prostrate, didn't bow. So they went and told Mordechai, how come you're not doing it? He says, I'm a Jew, I will never, he didn't tell him, I will never bow down to a deity. I don't bow, we Jews don't bow down to any uh, other god, Just we just bow to Hashem, that's it, no other gods. That got Haman furious. But Haman wasn't satisfied just by letting out his anger against the Jewish people, uh, against Mordechai, who got him angry because he felt he assaulted, he felt slighted by Mordechai that he wouldn't bow and prostrate. He says, I'm going to kill the entire Jewish people for that. Now, you would think they would need a big meeting to go ahead after all, 127 countries, uh, all the Jewish people. No, he says to the king, I'm going to give the king 10,000 silver pieces for, instead of the Jews. He says the Jews are worthless. He says anyways, they have other observances. Their laws are different than all the nations. They don't pay taxes. Now, I don't know where he came up with that. He says they don't pay taxes. And there is no benefit, there is no value to have them Part of the of the uh, of the country, he says. Okay, goes. What does the king say? The king says, "You know what? You keep the money." He says, "You don't have to give the money. Do the Jews as you please." That's it. No meetings, no nothing. He says, "Go ahead, kill them. You want to kill the Jews?" King Achashver takes off his ring. He says, "You're the ring. You're in charge. Any big thing that needs to be done, sign it, seal it." He goes out and he says, in a year from now, make sure that everybody would know, kill all the Jews on the 13th day of Adar, all, all, all that. Now, when later on, when Esther was speaking to Achashverosh eventually by the party, when she finally told him, she said to him, The enemy, this Haman, he isn't worth, he doesn't care about the damage of the king. He says, if he cared about the king, he should have said, go sell them into slavery, so at least the king will make some money from them. He says, just kill them. What benefit is the king going to have by just killing them? What kind of benefit? So he says, this Haman. And then the king kills Haman and everything else. So, but, just the point, he said that, you know, Akashverish was no... Uh, was no Jew lover either. He was no. Uh, he had no special feeling, and the Pesach said he was an evil person. But the thing is, he was a madman because he changes. You know, so what happens is that here he promotes. Uh, um, he promotes Haman. And then he kills him. And then he kills him. <laughs> now, 
But what happens here is that Esther had a plot. What was Esther's plot? Esther said that she's going to invite only two people to the party. And one of them is going to be Haman. She says to the king, you come and Haman come. Now the king starts to think something going on over here between Haman and this Esther with my queen, something going on. Why is she just inviting uh, Haman and me? Oh, we're on equal basis over here. But that was the height of his anger when Haman was angered. He comes home and he tells his wife, who is no less of an anti-Semite than he and his friends, he tells them, he says, look, he says, I am so important to the king. You know, he's promoted me. Everybody's bowing and everybody's doing, but this one Jew, Haman, every, uh, every time I see him, he gets me so angry and he's... Because Mordechai actually had a document which showed that Haman sold himself as a slave to him. And there was at one point, they were both heading uh, armies and Haman hadn't had any food to eat to feed his people and himself. And Mordechai gave him the food because Haman didn't think. He ate up all the food right away. He's left with nothing. So he comes to Mordechai. Mordechai says, you want to live? You want to survive? You've got to sell yourself for a slave. So every time when the big shot Haman would walk by, he'd, some people said he had it written on his shoe. He'd pick up his shoe. Or he'd pick <laughs> up his shoe. He says, look at it. No, that was after he already made the decree. So then when he comes to the house, when he comes home, he says, I am so this Mordechai gets me angry. He has all the honor and all my children. He was boasting of all of his kids and all of his wealth and all of his and all of his honor. He's saying, he's saying it's worthless to me. Every time I see this Mordechai, the Jew, sitting in the gate of the king, he says this. Word. So they say to him, you know what? Go ahead and build a gallows. In the morning, go to the king and ask him to hang Haman. Because Haman didn't want to take action on his own, he was afraid. So he wanted the king's approval. So now he goes and he makes the the gallows. But the next day what happens is the king goes to sleep and he couldn't fall asleep. And one of the things that was bothering him was because of the party, uh, Esther invited Haman. And the king is saying to himself, why is what's going on between Esther and Haman over here? He said, why is she inviting Haman? He says, and how come if they're plotting to kill me, hey, Esther's planning to marry Haman and to kill the king? He says, how come nobody's telling me? It must be people don't trust me anymore. Why? Because there must be that I somebody's done something good for me and I never paid him back. And people don't like me anymore because they say this king doesn't care about anything. You can do him a favor and then he just ignores you. So he says, let me take the book of Chronicles. Let me see what's written there. And they actually find that in the book of Chronicles, there's this story that Mordechai saved the king's life. Because in an earlier, when Mordechai was sitting at the gate of the king, he heard two of the guards that were watching the entranceway that they were plotting to kill the king. If you want to go, we can stop here. Huh? I said, you need to go. Oh, if you yeah. want to finish, go ahead. No. I just want to, want to hear the story? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, so he says, 
So he says, if you want to kill the, the, the they, they wanted to kill the king. But the king, uh, but they were talking in a Tarsin, it's a foreign language. They, nobody knew that. So they said Mordechai wouldn't know. But Mordechai was part of the Sanhedrin. He was the high court. The, anybody who was in the Jewish high court needed to be familiar with all 70 languages. And he heard them plotting to poison the king. So what he did was, he told Esther, and Esther told the king, and the king wrote it down. But they never uh, paid the favor back to Mordechai for saving the king's life. So then... When Haman is coming to the king to tell him to go hang Mordechai on the gallows, and the king is reading in his book, the people are reading for the king in his book, that Mordechai saved the king's life, and the king asks the person who's reading, he says, how did we pay back Mordechai? And the guy says, no, we never paid him back anything. Oh, now the king says, who's in the yard? In the meantime, uh, somebody's there. Haman, come in, Haman. King says to Haman, Haman, I want to ask you a question, the king says. What do you think should be done to someone who the king wishes to honor? Forced to pay back. And Haman thinks to himself, he says, Hmm, who does the king want to honor besides me? Says, I'm the one. So he comes up with a what a great idea, he says, you know what, they should take the garments of the king, and they should take the crown of the king. As soon as he said the crown of the king, the king got white and colors, he says, take the crown of the king, because the king is already suspecting uh, that he's plotting something against him, and he says the crown, but he says, he keeps on saying, and let them dress it up to the person who the king wants to honor, and they should have parading in front of him on the king's horse, on the special horse, and let them say, this is the way you do to the one who king wants to honor. Take him all around the Shushan, the capital of Shushan, and give him that honor. And the next time he's, but uh, Haman realized that he stepped over bound by saying to put on the crown, so he says, just the horse and the garment. And then the king tells him, guess what, he says, why don't you do that to Mordechai the Jew who is sitting in the uh, in the gate of the king? He says, ah, oh, now he was devastated. So he has no choice, the king said. The king says he has to obey, no choice. He puts on. The Medrash tells us a lot of, makes it very, very interesting how Mordechai gave him a hard time, you know, till he dressed him and till he, he wasn't shaven. And he, you know, he, he, there's a whole long story, but this is not in the Megillah itself. It's from the Talmud and from the Drushim they give you. But eventually, it says that his daughter was looking from the window, from her upper window, and she sees, she couldn't see well. She sees somebody on the horse, somebody leading it. She was so certain that her father is the one sitting on the horse, and Mordechai was was uh, was leading the horse uh, that she took a bucket of garbage and dumped it on on thinking in Mordechai's head turns out he looked up he says who is this she says it's her father so she jumped out of the uh, out of the window and she died so that's why it says <clears throat> that Haman comes back to his house he was mourning he lost it and he was covered with the garbage and he calls his wife and he calls his friends he says they say to him, look, he says, if Mordechai is from the Jewish people, 
if you begin to fall before him, you're going to fall and fall and fall. You're not going to get up. He says the Jewish people are compared, Rashi explains, are compared to the stars, compared to the dust of the ground. He says when they fall, they fall very low. But when they go up, they go up to the heavens, up to the stars. There's no way that you are going to um, beat them. So the next day at the party, Esther goes back and she <coughs> tells the king that this is Haman is the one and uh, that did it and and Haman fell. It says that a angel came pushed Haman, so he fell on top of Esther. And the king comes in and he sees him on top of Esther. He says, "Are you going to conquer the queen while I'm in the house over here?" And hang him. So Charmaiah said, "Well, there is the gallows." I mean, he never got to say to the king what he came to in the first place to hang Haman. He says, "There's the gallows in his house that he prepared to hang Mordechai." King says, "Go hang him on those gallows." So they went to the hang Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordechai. There's some. There's a very central theme in this uh, in Megillah. The same gallows that he put to kill Mordechai, he was hung up. Everything is, in the Hebrew it's called, it says v'nahapachu. It was turnaround. It was just the opposite that happens. Even when later on, when the Esther came to the king and she told him to rescind, to take away the, uh, the decree of, 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 of Haman, the king says, and so they decided, that same day that the anti-Semites, the people who wanted to do bad for the Jewish people, that same day that they wanted to kill the Jews, on that same day, the Jews went and took revenge on their enemies. Not a day before, not a day later. Also that same theme from Venahapichu to turn it around, to show that the evil itself, that thing that was uh, supposed to be bad, turned out to be that same day, those same gallows, those same evil decrees were turned around later on for the favor of the Jews. Jews accepted upon themselves the day of Purim. One of the things of Purim is unusual. Is it says that on Purim, one is supposed to say al-chayim, you know, get drunk. And, but the idea here is to really celebrate uh, the miraculous events. Uh, it's the Megillah of Esther, you know, it was, a, it was a difficult time for the Jews then. See, sometimes a miracle happens, like when Jews are in Israel, they can see that it's a miracle. This was in Persia. This was uh, uh, the time of exile, no temple. It was a difficult time. Even after the miracles, the Jews still remained servants of Achashverosh. They, they weren't redeemed. They didn't go out of exile. They didn't have their own, uh, uh, determined their own you know, destiny. They didn't have their own rights. They were still no rights, and uh, it was a lot of difficulties. But this was a glimmer of hope that despite the fact within the difficulty, within the darkness, within the exile, there is still the hand of God that is always watching over us. And that's why we make such a big deal. It's more than just a miracle. It's a miracle within the exile, within the darkness, within the uh, low levels that we were. And in the Megillah, if you take a look, there's not one time God's, men's, God's name mentioned in it. There's no name of God in there. Well, there's various reasons. Some say because 
it was also for the Persian people, and they would make it into their god. They would have other intentions. But the main thing is, is to reveal. Megillah means reveal. Reveal the Esther, the hidden. To reveal the hidden. There is a, a hidden in the darkness, in the difficulties, in the challenges. There is a spark in there that we have to dig and find and reveal, and then we too can experience this kind of miracles for the Jewish people, in our own lives, in our own selves, just to be able to bring out that special Megillah. And this was all done by by Queen Esther, together with some help of Mordechai, but that was done. Okay, so we, we didn't learn today too much Chumash.